right, y'all, welcome to another episode of the Good News Cast. Um, we're going to get right into it because Jeff has 18 minutes. That is how much he values this podcast. Cookie. Cookie. This co- I've already taken a bite. I, or I didn't take a bite. I ripped a piece off. Um, Soft. But uh, that cookie is from... Do you want me to tell you where it's from no, or do you want yet. to do it blind? Not yet. All right. So... Um, That's a good cookie. <laughs> but it has a... Um, it doesn't have a homemade taste to it at all to me. It has a... Like maybe like, you know, a big old store-bought feel that you just stick it, mm. you know, raw. You stick it in the oven and out comes this cookie. It mm-hmm. has that kind of feel to me. Like it's been mass produced mm. and put in the oven and baked. Mm-hmm. These are my wife's cookies. <laughs> are they really? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, my heart's sake. How am I going to get out of that one? That was just horrible. Um, I give it like a, oh dude, I don't know, like a 5.8 or mm-hmm. something. No, not, I'm in the, I'm in the mid range. Not a fan. Yeah. So where, where is this? Well, you know what? In light of those reviews, maybe we'll just move on and okay. let that, that's from a local establishment <laughs> okay. that has amazing lunch, Ah, amazing lunch, mm-hmm. not great cookies. Um, you know what? It's from Schmaltz's. Okay. Oh, Okay. Uh, l- l- I I don't that's know. Interesting. I mean, that's that, Schmaltz, but so it, yeah, that's good enough, right? Like, yeah. okay, Schmaltz is in Waco. I mean, I love. I do you ever get their I sandwiches? I love their sandwiches. Unbelievable. Absolutely love their sandwiches. Garlic butter. Oh, um, incredible. Their bread is insane. I mean, yep. truly, truly, like, yeah, insane sandwich. That cookie's good enough. Like, if you want a chocolate chip cookie uh-huh. with your sandwich, like, you're yeah. not going to be, right. you're not going to call mom about it. Yep. But you're not going to. You're not going to record a podcast and dog. Well, it's it. kind of like when oh, I told you before. I got these gourmet cookies from uh, from Fort Worth, and after right after COVID, and I tasted. I couldn't wait to eat it, and I tasted it, and I couldn't taste it. I knew it was a good mm-hmm. cookie, and I couldn't taste it, so I took one bite and put it back in the freezer because I am not mm-hmm. going to waste. <laughs> right? If I can't taste it, I'm not going to waste it. Yeah, I would keep eating this one. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, their sandwiches are, are off the charts. All right. 15 minutes. We've been talking about covenant theology. Yeah. Um, uh, there's, there's obviously uh, a lot that can, can be talked about. You're teaching a class. So a lot of this content and the details of it is very fresh on your mind. So, um, you're going to riff. Yeah. We're going to zoom in on let, Genesis one and two. Let you talk. Um, cause we don't have a ton of time on, Genesis one and two and the covenant of works. Yeah. Um, that's again, I mean, you can do some reminders too, but we, we kind of began with these three big grand covenants, the covenant of works being one of them. Yeah. So you can kind of uh, zoom in on that. And yeah. So just, just remember there's a map uh, to the forest of covenant theology. And the first map is what is covenant theology and, and the answer is, if the Bible is about Jesus, covenant theology is going to tell you the story about Jesus. It's, it's the soil of the Bible. Then you're going to need to answer this question, well, what is a covenant? And we're answering, short answer, the Zoom condensed version is it's a binding relationship. So it's not just a binding, and it's not just a relationship. It's a binding relationship. It's, 
It, there's many ancient liturgies and uh, treaties and ways of doing this, but I picture two hands being joined together, arms being joined together, wrapped in a cord. They're bound in a relationship. And when we move to the next question about covenant theology, it's what's that cord made of? What's that binding relationship made of? What's its DNA? What's its nature? What's the essence of it? Well, there's only two, ti- two kinds of bindings, two kinds of covenants in the Bible. One is a law-driven covenant, uh, a works-driven covenant, a performance-driven covenant, and the other is a gospel-driven covenant, grace-driven covenant, promise-driven covenant. You can even move down into things like bilateral covenant uh, or a unilateral covenant. If you go historically into the ancient world, it's going to be called a, a suzerain vassal treaty in terms of the covenant of works or the law or the obedience-based or performance-based, and then you have what's called a royal grant treaty, uh, historically speaking. And so those are the two kinds. That's what you got. And then what you just mentioned, there are three epic, cosmic, global covenants in covenant theology. Again, this is the map of covenant theology. There's the covenant of works one with Adam. Uh, these are universal, global, epic. There's the after Adam's sin. There's a covenant of grace with sinners. God binding Himself to sinners. Well, how can He do such a thing? Because there's a covenant of grace too with the better Adam, with Jesus. That's usually called the covenant of redemption. Um, so the next step, just to give us a map. Uh, so really, from Genesis three fifteen on, the Bible is under the. Uh, controlling influence, the dominating impact of God binding himself uh, to sinners in a covenant of grace. So the Bible basically unfolds uh, historical chapters or epics of the covenant of grace. And so you get to Noah and you get to Abraham, you get to uh, Moses, you get to David, and then you get to the new covenant with Jesus. So that's and uh, and a flyover, the map of covenant theology. So we zoom in on, let's say, the covenant of works. Where do we find that? That's a Genesis 1 and 2. And so in Genesis 1, uh, the central locale is creation. Genesis 2, the central locale is the garden. Uh, and so right away, the Bible's telling us that these two are distinct. Um, and then even in 2, it tells us that uh, there was no man to work the ground, thus God created man. So that's just an interesting, what, there's no man to work the ground? So what was man supposed to do? I mean, you can see some of the inherent purpose in man. He was to work creation, Mm -hmm. work the ground. And by working creation, he was to turn it into a garden. So the garden was supposed to stretch over all creation, uh, and take creation upward and forward into an ultra-consummate, Sabbath-like, royal rest. Theological words would be like, or biblical words would be like eternal life, or glorification, or the new heavens and the new earth. And so what would that mean? That would mean that the invisible heavens that was made, and the visible earth that was made, were to unite into one larger reality called consummate life. And so the garden, uh, which interestingly many scholars believe was on top of a mountain in Genesis 1, (laughs) is where the invisible world that was created and the visible world that was created mixed. It was like, uh, you know, King's Crossing, so to speak. 
And so that's why you got to ask yourself, why aren't Adam and Eve freaking out when a snake comes into the garden? Well, maybe they're, maybe they're used to celestial be- beings intersecting at this place. Maybe the garden is actually pointing to uh, an ultimate end of creation, and that would mean that creation is really unfinished business. So salvation is not going back to creation. Uh, salvation is actually going forward to its ultimate end, which is called eschatology. So creation, the garden was meant to be extended over all creation or fusing together the invisible heavens and the visible earth into one larger reality called eternal life, consummate life, ultra life, super life, right? And it needed the little king to do that because God had already set the pattern. So you have the tree of life pointing forward to ultimate life. You have the garden pointing forward to ultimate life. You have God in Genesis 1 working six days, entering into the royal rest. You have everything in Genesis 1 living by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So you have this phrase, let there be, and there was, right? So all the servants uh, are living by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And it's interesting that all the servants in Genesis 1, these little kingdoms, also have little kings in those kingdoms. There's one to rule every kingdom. So again, the pattern is pretty well set. So by the time you get to two, you're wondering when God announces in the royal court, uh, let us make man, uh, the tension of the story is building is will God's prized creature do the work to enter into the rest? Will he live by every word that comes from the mouth of God? So that's how Genesis 1 and 2 is set up. And so then when you get the command in 2, 15, and 17, uh, it's almost like um, the cosmic trial has been put into effect. Will man do it? Will man live by every word that comes from the mouth of God? And by the time we get to Genesis 3 and we see the snake come into the garden and we know that Adam doesn't stomp on its head, we know something is tragically wrong Mm -hmm. because the words that God used uh, is that he said in Genesis 2, he put man in the garden to work it and to guard it. And that word guard or keep in your translation is the same word used for the Levitical priests who were to guard uh, Israel from breaking in on ultimate consummate concentrations of holiness in the tabernacle uh, or on Mount Sinai or uh, in the the temple. So uh, Adam did not guard the garden. He did not guard, uh, do um, his part of trusting God and obeying God with life. And, uh, and then everything blew up from there. So the covenant of grace actually shows up in that moment that Adam and Eve are still breathing after they tried to take God's place as Lord and Savior or be like a little God or a big God, I should say. Um, That's what the angels that Peter talks about, the angels in heaven peer over and we're just like, what is this strange thing? Mm -hmm. This strange thing called grace, Mm -hmm. this new music that just entered the world that's never been heard before. Uh, So you have the covenant of works, uh, and then you see the covenant of grace by the mere fact that God uh, covenant uh, creation didn't fall to its final condemnation. It goes sideways, so to speak, to corruption. So all that's packed in Genesis 1 through 3. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely crazy. I don't need to add anything or want to. <laughs> um, and honestly, I, I wasn't even listening. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, for time's sake, I wanted that to be short and sweet and yeah. to the point. And uh, I think that this is really eye-opening for you doing this class and what I've kind of announced to the church is like this content's very eye-opening to yeah. how you read the Bible, yeah. right? Because especially um, in our day and age, you crack open Genesis 1 and you think, all right, let's get into science class. And and Moses set out to teach me the science behind yeah. uh, the universe. He had Darwinism in, in mind, evolutionary theory in mind. Yeah, yeah. So, so we bring these questions to Genesis that uh, that Moses wasn't trying to answer and really there's this bigger message that's being told about the world and why it is the way it is we we've talked about this recently in different groups of um you know why the law i mean this gets into interesting stuff that we can maybe do later of like even the law gospel distinction and how it works with covenant theology and, and all that but why you know the laws written on our hearts, and why do we have this kind of nagging sense of guilt in every human heart? You know, mm-hmm. perhaps it's this long echo from failure that um, that that all of humanity did go to corruption, should have gone to complete death. It went to corruption, and now we're born dead in sin. We're born. We we are guilty. We're sinful. And we know that that this covenant of works between God and man has been completely broken. Um, Last night we talked about how, um, why is it that all of us have this desperate need to prove ourselves? Mm-hmm. And it goes back mm-hmm. to that, that moment, that cosmic trial. Why mm-hmm. does every mythology and every culture and civili- civilization have these, and every movie that's almost like everybody's trying to, and they'll say it. They need to prove their worth, prove themselves, or uh, there's these cosmic trials that the gods and demigods are involved in, and and uh, and what's hanging in the balance. Um, you know, either everybody kind of you know uh, grew up in a in a home that created an environment where every child needs to prove themselves, or maybe every child needs to prove themselves. Every civilization and culture bears out that need because it is an echo of Genesis 1 Mm -hmm. and Genesis 2. Then you think justification, which is at the heart of the gospel, is forgiveness and acceptance. Yeah. You know, approval from God. You're enough. You are approved. You're accepted. The trial's over. Not based on you fulfilling a covenant of works, but based on another, based on the Son of God fulfilling it for yeah. you, doing so. There's the work those three global you. covenants again, mm-hmm. right there. All, all right there. Even in Genesis one, two, and three. It's good. You gotta go. Yep. Peace out. Later. Oh.